Thank you, Addison. That was awesome. In fact, that was a shoot that thing good. <laughs> shoot that thing good. Amen. And David, I didn't even know that was you on the piano. I didn't even look over there and thought it was Jenny and it was you. So how about that? Just double surprise. All right, very good. Well, tonight's a little bit going to be a little bit different. As hard as I might try, I don't think this is a sermon. I think this is a testimony and of, of someone in the Bible. Um, I, was, I was studying this. Acts chapter 9, by the way, is where we're going. Acts chapter 9. And I was thinking about this morning's message, and I was thinking about what to bring tonight. And the idea and the thought was this. You know, you know, if in fact it's true, and I believe it is, if in fact it's true that God performs course corrections in our lives, okay, like we preached this morning, um, then it's also very true that the ultimate course correction is our salvation experience. Would you say amen to that? So if it's true that as we journey through life, and Addison has certainly seen course corrections in her life as God has worked. We shared about Katie um, this morning and her course correction. I was standing there this morning, or stepping in my house, just thinking, I went, one one-thousandth of a point, Lord? One one-thousandth of a point. And God used that, though, to change her life dramatically and is serving young people. And then I think about Molly Wise. And uh, I didn't get Molly's permission, so I didn't want to say this on the radio. I'm sure it will be fine. But, of course, they're now in Mississippi. Is that where they're at? In Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana. And um, in her case, she was studying to be a nurse. She really wanted to be a nurse. And she had a car accident, and both her knees were bummed up. And she could not, no longer stand as a nurse was required to stand. And uh, God changed her course. And she became a, uh, for lack of a better term, a social worker, touching deeply the lives of people. And again, that was a great course correction. But bigger than that was how God used her to save families. You know, not only that, Nicaragua also. Nicaragua, but she was our, she was like the, the perfect God-made safe families coordinator. I mean, her background, her heart, all of that just came together for her to be a, a wonderful safe families coordinator. But it all happened because of a course correction. So think about your life. And if, A, you look back in the back and go, oh, that's what God was doing. He had a course correction going on in my life to make me a better servant, a better vessel for him to use in kingdom work. And perhaps tomorrow there might be one coming in your life, another course correction, and you'll be wise enough to go, oh, wait a minute. God may be something up, up to something right now. Perhaps he's doing a course correction there. But ultimately... Ultimately, the greatest course correction for each of us was the day we met Jesus Christ as Savior. I thought about John Newton. John Newton, Newton was probably one of the most the hardest men uh, that, that probably the world has known. You know his story probably now. His father was a, a, a captain of a vessel, and he stayed on board with his, his brother, with his dad, and learned all about the sea, but also learned to be a hard man. And he grew up to be a slave trader. He was a captain, eventually, of his own ship and trading slaves and treated them horribly, treated them horribly. They were cargo. And then one night in a fierce storm, he made this promise to God, God, if you will save me through the storm, then I will serve you. And through that, he came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And ultimately, he wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wrench Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The ultimate course correction. God took him from being a hardened slave trader into being a great man of God. And that's what God does when he reaches down from heaven and he saves and changes us. He makes us new and he saves us and forgives our sin. 
I really believe there's a strong parallel between John Newton and, and Saul, and we're going to say Saul and Paul interchangeably tonight because I know that's what's going to come out of my mouth. But Acts chapter 9 is the story of Saul's conversion. Now, we, we pretty much know the story. If you're a church person, if you've been in Sunday school a while, and if you've been in church a while, you kind of know the story. And that's why I say, hard as I might, there probably won't be a sermon as much as we're going to tell a testimony tonight. But it's such a powerful testimony, and we can perhaps see this in our own lives. Some of Paul's testimony will become our testimony, and hopefully we'll pick up just a few things along the way that will make this testimony more real and more powerful in our lives. So we begin with Acts chapter 9 and verse number 1 and verse number 2. And there we read these words, But, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Let's pause there. What is the steal? Well, if you go back to um, Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, let me just read it to you because there's three verses there. This is what it says. Now Saul was consenting to his death, his being Stephen's. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now we need to pause there. Holy moly, you know what I just saw? I saw a course correction. Here we see the, the first martyr. We see the death of Stephen. But God uses that to scatter the church. And what happens when the church gets scattered? Missionaries. Missionaries. They become missionaries and telling the gospel in that entire region. So again, God used Stephen's death as a course correction in the life of his church. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And look at verse number 3. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. So we really have to look hard in our minds to see just what an evil man Saul was. And yet, amazingly, he would be called a very religious man. And I wrote down this, if nothing, this is how far religion can get off course. We have got to be careful about religion. We know of, of, of religions here in America, the one, the crazy one out west, you know, where they, where they write all these hateful, hateful signs. And yet they do so in the name of, and I put it in quotes, please, God. Listen, religion will lead you astray every time. We don't need religion. We don't need to get religion. We need a relationship and have a relationship with a living God because of His Son, Jesus Christ. So this shows us how religion is not the answer. Because that's exactly what Saul had. So he, he was breathing these threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And the word that is accurate is he hated Christians. He didn't dislike them. He hated them. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing is, is why, why did he go to the high priest in Jerusalem asking for letters for the synagogues in Damascus. And the bottom line is this, is the high priest of Jerusalem was usually, because that was the mothership, if you will, was granted usually by Rome letters and, and authority was given throughout the region. So he went to this high priest, even though he wasn't the high priest in that area, and got authority to take these letters to the synagogues of Damascus. And that he found any by the way. Anyone knows by the, why it's called the way? They're not called Christians yet. They were first called Christians at Antioch because probably of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And 
Christ followers, disciples, were often called a people of the way. And by the way, I think that's a really, really good name. So now, this, why, why Damascus? Why Damascus? Why did he get the synagogues at Damascus? Well, interestingly enough, do you remember something called the Decapolis? You remember the story, I think it's Mark chapter 4, of the demon-possessed man? You remember that? Not, not even say good. Yeah. So remember this one where the pigs jumped in? Pigs in space. They jumped off the cliff. Okay, went into the water. Okay, and the man goes to Jesus and begs and says, Hey, can I please go with you? I don't want to stay with these people. Can I go with you? And Jesus said, No, you go tell your friends and family what marvelous things God has done for you. And the Bible simply says this, that he went and taught and gave his testimony, again the word testimony, his testimony in Decapolis, which means the ten cities. The ten cities. And we learn later on in like Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 7, that, that you know, people are being healed in the name of Jesus. And Jesus feeds the 4,000 people in that area. I love this fact. Where did that, how did that happen? And how it happened was the testimony of one man God used to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. So when Jesus shows up later, the next time he's in that area, a, a decapolis, then guess what? Masses come to see him. Why? Because one man was faithful. One man, one church can make a difference. Amen? Amen? So, so that's one reason. Now, because of that, Damascus was one of those ten cities. It, it was a very large city. It was a strong city. And perhaps they saw that as a gateway for Christianity. And Paul, Saul, wanted to shut it down. So that's why he probably chose Damascus. And then, notice, this is not a, this is not a men-specific roundup. He would drag, and again, this is so, so far outside of our realm, well, not in America where we live in today, but he would drag men and women to Jerusalem that might put them in prison. So if nothing else, take this home tonight. Dwayne, what should I take home? When religion is without Christ, it becomes a monster. When religion becomes without Christ, it's a monster. Anyone ever heard of the Crusades? Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in the name of God, in the name of God. By godless men in the name of religion. In the name of religion. So that's the setup. That's the situation. Then the Bible says in verse number 3, Now, as he saw, went on his way, he approached Damascus. Now this was an interesting fact. From, Damas from Jerusalem to Damascus was a six-day journey, 175 miles. A six-day journey... 175 miles. And remember, they weren't in a car. They were walking or riding a donkey. This shows the passion that Saul had to destroy the church. All right? So he's on his way, and he's approaching Damascus. The Bible says, and suddenly a light from heaven. And the Bible records in different places, Paul gives his testimony, that this happened around noonday, and that the light, in, in Acts 26, 13, it talks about the light being brighter than the sun. So this was something extraordinary. Have anybody ever looked at the sun before at noonday? I wouldn't suggest you. I wouldn't suggest it. But you can imagine how bright it is. It's brighter than that. And that explains, by the way, why Saul was probably, or Paul was uh, probably blinded. So a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. And by the way, and, and it's implied when Ananias gets around to the story that he not only heard, but he also saw. He heard and he saw. Saul, Saul. Never mind. Okay. So he heard a voice and Saul, and this voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, there's a couple amazing things here. First off, notice the identity of Jesus with his church. You know, Jesus suffers with his church. And when Saul was choosing to persecute the disciples, he was, in fact, persecuting Jesus Christ. Isn't it great to know we have a Savior that identifies with our sufferings? We have a Savior who identifies with our pain. We have a Savior who identifies when we hurt. He does. And so when, when this question was asked, you know, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Lord. And it, this was more than, it had to be more than sir. It had to be more than respect. At this point, he's not calling Jesus Messiah, but it's certainly more than just a term of respect. Who are you, Lord? And I am Jesus. The second amazing thing is, Saul thought he was dead. Saul thought he was dead. Imagine the shock when he sees and he hears and says, and Jesus says, it is me. It is me. Um, probably the thought, uh-oh, went through his mind. Bigger than a whoops, but an uh-oh. Oh, no. I'm persecuting the risen one. So in verse 6, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. It's game over. Just like that. Just like that. Arise and go to the city. And the Bible says he does. And verse number 7 says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but not seeing anyone. So Saul rose from the ground and though his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Can I ask you a question? Why? Why do you think he was made blind? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had one of those crisis moments? Anybody here had a foxhole deal? You know, where you're about to die, you think you're going to die, and you say, Oh, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll serve you forever. Ever had one of those moments? And then when it's over, you kind of forget. <laughs> Have you ever made a promise to God on Monday and forgot it Tuesday? Lord, don't let my wife find out. And she didn't, you went, Okay. Ever happened? I just wonder if God kind of gave Saul a gentle reminder that this wasn't bad pizza. This was a real encounter. And by the way, this part of this was not a vision. I mean, Jesus was there. It was not like some, just a bright light and, oh, Jesus was there. All theologians agree. Christ was there. This was not a vision. He saw Jesus. In fact, in fact, one of the ways he could claim to be an apostle, and one of the requirements of an apostle, is that you had to see Jesus. The risen yeah, and he did. So I think God kind of gave him a gentle reminder to make sure he understood this was not bad pizza. This was not just a weird day. This was not just a really bright solar eclipse and, and you thought you saw something, thought you heard something. He had a physical reminder that he was in the process of a course correction. And I thank God sometimes he gives us tangible things like that to remind us. So the Bible says, they, and this is good, but watch. They led him by the hand. What's important about that? First, you've got Saul, the murderer, the imprisoner of Christians, and now you've got Saul, the child, or by, taken by the hand and led by a child. What a radical change already is taking place. A zealot turned humble. A zealot turned humble. And when God is in the process of bringing a man to himself, he takes dramatic actions and dramatic change happens. So the people took him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he's without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now just imagine that. Paul's with me. I'll slow down. I'll get quiet. He's sitting in the room. 
He can hear voices. He sees nothing. He eats nothing. He drinks nothing for three days. Now we find out in just a couple of verses that God is in fact working in his life. We're just not privy to it at this moment. So then, again, if this, was a, if this was a play, Tim, there would be a change of music. The, something would change in the, in the theme music of the play. Because the Bible says, in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus. There was a Christ follower at Damascus. His name was Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, now notice this is a vision, okay? He said to him in a vision, Ananias, and look, he said, here I am, Lord. I wrote down by that a disciple's only response. A disciple's only response. I hope, I was so tempted this morning to cut the message off the first point because we're at that crazy time. It was about 25 after. I tried to get done by 1130-ish. Ish. Okay? And so I really had to rush through that part. But did you grab a hold of why, why you're here? That your purpose is to be a, a spreader of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That you're not here to be a teacher. You're not here to be a banker. You're not here to do this. You're not here. You're, really, your world is to be a propagator of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the disciples' response is, here am I. I love that. I think it was David Platt that said, you know, the question, you know, the question is not, you know, should I go? It's why, I'm, why am I still here? The, the question is not, should I share the gospel of Jesus Christ? The question is, why am I not sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, the very reason, once we have experienced his amazing and marvelous grace, once we get, the more we understand his amazing, marvelous grace, the more we just have to share and we want to share. And again, that's something I love about our church because we're learning ministry touching in the name of Jesus. I think it's a very important part of who we are as a church. So Ananias, the ever-willing disciple, simply answers and says, here I am, Lord. May that always be our response. And the Lord said this. Arise and go to the street called Street. You know what's amazing? You know, obviously Damascus is still a, a city today. And guess what? Straight Street's still there. You can go and walk on this street. Isn't that cool? You know why? It just affirms the Bible. It affirms the Bible. You could go to Damascus today and walk on Straight Street, the same Straight Street that... Paul walked on, Saul walked on, Ananias walked on. He said, go to the straight street at the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now, just about this time, you know, God's talking. Sometimes this happens. God's talking and, and Ananias is thinking. He goes, Saul of Tarsus. Where have I heard that name? Saul of Tarsus. Where have I heard that name? And then God says, and here we're privy now to what, what God's what God's doing in Saul's life. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. So, so we have now, as Saul is sitting in this room, we know God is giving him a vision. And God is saying, a man's going to come to you. This is a surety. Because remember now, he's blind, can't see. He don't know what's going on. He knows what happened on the road to Damascus. He doesn't know any more than more than that. Knows nothing of God's grace. Knows nothing about what God's going to do with him. He doesn't know God's going to kill him or do anything with him. He's going to find out, but he doesn't know yet. Okay? And so now this vision comes to him. Their man's coming to you. His name will be Ananias. And he's going to restore your sight. So, so we know now that Saul's had this vision while he's sitting there for three days, not eating, not drinking, but praying. All right, then, verse 13. Now, don't let this undermine what I just said about Ananias. Because he, he said, here am I. Here am I. 
it's the disciples' proper response. But this does not undermine that. He's simply asking questions. This is not Jonah. I'm not going to go preach. I'm not going to do it. Listen, God, I'm not going to. You know, fish or no fish, I'm not going to. That's not the all. He's simply asking questions. <laughs> and boy, they're good questions. Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. In other words, the rumors and the, the refugees apparently have fled from Jerusalem, have fed, fled to Damascus. And so these refugees from Jerusalem are telling horrible stories about a man named Saul. And the evil he's done, by the way, first time in the Bible, the New Testament, that God's people are called saints. Saints. The set-apart ones. Okay? What evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, that was there. God, that was, you know, I know that was there, but now here, look, he says, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, if you'll notice in verse 14, 15, and 16, three times you're going to hear the name mentioned. The first time is this. Those, he's there to persecute those who call on the name, who depend on, who lean on the name. But the Lord said to him, verse 15, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the one who's doing evil to those who bear the name is now going to carry the name. And I'll go ahead and jump forward to verse 16. And it's all for the sake of my name. How powerful. The name, oh, come on now, come on. The name that Saul hated now plays a key role in who he is. That's the power of the gospel. In verse 15, you see Paul's mission statement. Um, the, the commentary subtitled this sanctification. You know, we talked a little bit about sanctification in Sunday school this morning. And sanctification simply means being set apart. And this is Paul. In one verse, Dr. Luke comes and, and this gives, job, gives his job description to the apostle Paul and now Saul. Here's what he says. Go, because one... He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. He will be a bearer of my name. Before the Gentiles, yes. Before kings, absolutely. And even the children of Israel, yes. This was Paul's summary statement, Saul's summary statement. Oh, my goodness. Slow down, Blaine. Summary statement of his ministry and of his life. Isn't that wonderfully powerful? And guess what? God's got one for you. God's got one for you. See, I think we missed that. I think, you know, Judy, we, we heard so well in our, from our teachers this morning, from Phil Shriver, how that, you know, we understand salvation as being a past event. And it is. Again, mine was October 26, 19, um, 1975. I remember that very clearly. But also, salvation is an ongoing process. And that's called sanctification. The process of making us more like Christ. We were saved, but we are being saved. And she is Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, by the renewing of our minds. So we're being saved. And ultimately, one day, we will be saved. And that's in the absolute presence of sin. I love that line tonight. Free from sinning. Free from sinning. Don't you long sometime for a world where sin's not there? Don't you long for a world where you will be free from sinning? You ever get frustrated yourself because you messed up again and you're just mad at yourself for doing that? Well, there's coming a day. So it's in our past, it's we were saved, we're being saved, and we're going to be saved. We're free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin ultimately one day.
How powerful and how great um, is that? So he says, he will carry my name. And then the Bible says, verse 17, so Ananias departed and he entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, here are the two words. If you remember anything I say tonight or the Bible says tonight, remember this, brother Saul. Brother Saul. I think we need this lesson. Ananias could have gone and said, Saul. He could have done so with, with vengeance and malice in his tone. But he chooses grace. He walks in and there's a man, the once powerful Saul. He's humble, he's blind, he's broken, and he chooses grace. He lays his hand on this man that has killed Christians and was seeking to kill more of them, puts his hands on this man. Can you see Jesus here? It's like touching the leper. Like touching the leper. He puts his hands on him and says, Brother Saul. He chose to be an encourager. And may that be true of us. Amen? May it be true of us. There are so many times we have opportunities with our brothers and our sisters in Christ, and we have opportunities. We have a chance, opportunity to tear down, or we have a chance to build up. Could we please learn to choose grace and learn to be one who builds up and not tears down? Even though we have the opportunity to punch, we touch, and though we have the opportunity to verbally assault, we choose brother or sister. I love that. I love that. He. <laughs> I can't, somewhere in the Greek, I'm sure it says, and his knees were knocking. He says, Brother Saul. And he shares four things, all in the process of telling Saul what goes on. And it's recorded more later on in Acts. We get a few more details of what he says. But he says, first off this, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came. He's affirming what Saul saw. Say that three times fast. What Saul saw. He's affirming what Saul experienced on the road. And this. I shouldn't know this, but I know this. So if I know this, it proves I'm from Jesus. Got that? All right. So the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. So now, now Saul's going, okay, he knows details that only Jesus should know because only Jesus and I were there and the, guys aren't, the other guys aren't talking. They, they didn't see it, okay? So he knows details that only Jesus and I know and now he confirms the fact that Jesus has sent him and already we know from verse 12 that I've had a vision that a man named Ananias is coming to me and sharing with me that I might regain my sight. The third thing, he sent me so I can regain my sight. He confirmed verse 12. The vision that Saul had uh, Ananias confirms. And then, that you might be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't know. I didn't take the time. I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure when Saul's conversion takes place. But, you know, we believe that we're filled with the Spirit upon conversion. So, I, I, don't, I don't suppose, I don't know if Paul was saved on the road. If he's saved right here at this act, I'm not sure. You figure it out and let me know later on. But the bottom line is, is that an affirmation of Paul's salvation, Saul's salvation, is that he is filled with the Spirit. Because the Bible says, if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. Every one of us, when we were born again, received the Holy Spirit of God. So Ananias says, listen, Jesus appeared to you. He sent me. You're going to get your sight back, and He's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, verse 18, and immediately, 
Something like scales fell from his eyes. I read where the Greek says it was like peeled. Isn't this gross? Scales were like peeled from his eyes. That sounds, Benna, that sounds painful. Give me those yellow drops. Give me the yellow drops. If you ever been to Miss Benna, she's got the yellow drops that dead in your eyes. All right? So the scales were peeled from his eyes, and instantly he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized. He got up and was baptized as an act of obedience to his new Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing, going from the Christ-hater to the Christ-lover, the Christian killer to being a Christian himself, from one who sought to exterminate Christianity to one who's going to do his best to spread Christianity. That's the power of the gospel. And look, that's the power of the gospel in your life too. Saul, yes, Saul Paul was an incredible example of the grace of God, but each one of us are an incredible example of the grace of God. And the Bible says he started taking food, and he was strengthened, and he began to serve the Lord God. Isn't that a powerful testimony? And every one of us should be able to share our story of what God did in our life in a minute or two, just what God has done. Saul Paul never got over Jesus. And that's why, that's why I think he never got over God's grace. And that's why Romans is so powerful. Because he's such an experiencer of grace, he wanted everybody to understand the marvelous and great power of God's amazing grace. He understood that Jesus did it all. He understood that Jesus did it all. An uh, illustration came out of the commentary. I thought it was really good. And we'll close with this. A little, they were having a Sunday school class, and the teacher looked at his little students, you know, eight, nine years old, and asked the question, so what was your role in your salvation? What was your role in your salvation? And the little boy raised his hand and said, well, I did my part, and God did his. And that really perturbed the Sunday school teacher. He kind of concerned him, because, you know, it's kind of like a heresy thing, you know. And the little boy said, and the teacher said, what do you mean by that? And the little boy said, I did all I could to oppose him, and he did the rest. Isn't that true of us? We did all. I was running my hellbound race. I was opposing Christ. In fact, I was living the lie in church. And then I met Jesus. He changed my life. And you met Jesus, and he changed his life. So tell your story. You know, John Newton told his and wrote Amazing Grace. Saul, Paul wrote his and wrote a book of the New Testament. In each one of us, our sermon of God's grace to a world that needs to hear that great truth. Would you bow your heads, please? I oppose God and He did the rest. Can we leave tonight? This is our decision time. And uh, the altar's open if we want to come pray in a minute. Um, if there's any decision you need to make, church membership or baptism, maybe knowing Jesus. Maybe you just need someone to like to pray with you. But this is our decision time. But can we leave here tonight perhaps with just filled with gratitude about what God did for us. The day he changed my course. Now, I didn't say it tonight, so let me say it now. A very critical part of salvation is repentance. It's where we choose to turn from our sin and follow Jesus. It's a very crucial part of our salvation. And that's a beautiful picture of the ultimate course correction that God brings. When we're heading down our road, our path, doing our thing, and we choose to turn around from our sin and follow Jesus. So can we agree tonight, one, 
to thank God if we're a Christ follower tonight, to thank God for the ultimate course correction He gave in our lives, the day we turned from our sins and chose to follow and believe Him. And then secondly, perhaps. Perhaps you're here and there's a major course correction going on in your life. I think about Tim Sadler and his family and, and the death of his sister. What a major course correction that is. I, I know Tim well enough to know that in a couple of months I could call him and say, Tim, tell me what God did and what you learned through this tragedy. And he'll tell me and he'll share with me. I know Tim that well. So I think about him and I think about others in our lives who are going through, through course changes. I think about Marsha Prey going through chemo right now, having gone through surgery already. I think about Terry with his mama down in the nursing home. Each day is so difficult. Every day he does, she does not know him, but he loves her. He loves her. Some of you are at, at crucial points in your careers. Crucial point in your careers. You know, all these are potential course corrections. Father, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do with this course correction in my life? God, you're incredible. Thank you for John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, but I think even bigger, thank you for the fact that we all have experienced that, that our Christ followers tonight, we've experienced your amazing grace. You've saved each one of us from a certainty in a place called hell. No matter how moral we may thought ourselves being, we may have said we were no John Newton, but the bottom line is you saved us from eternal separation from you in a place called hell. Thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. Thank you that, that Saul's story is recorded so we may benefit from it. Father, make us aware of the dangers of religion. It, it, it permeates American society. I, when I go to Uganda, I see a country that's just consumed with religion but not consumed with Christ. I'm sure it's also true in Haiti and Nicaragua. Different religions but no Savior. So, Father, we pray that we'll be aware of the dangers of religion and always focus on our relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.